The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, we'll be looking this morning in Exodus chapter uh, 29, if you want to turn in your Bibles there, as we come close to wrapping up our journey through uh, all the fascinating information about the tabernacle. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole chapter because it's quite long and quite a lot of detail, uh, but I'm going to read the, the first part and then the last part to give you a feel. Um, so let's look together at uh, Exodus 29, verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on... uh, Put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Uh, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh, and And shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour on the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails, the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and burn them on the altar. It is a sin offering. Um, I'm sorry, but the flesh of the bull and its skin you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. All right, and then jumping over to um, the end, I think verse 38, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth seah of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer it with, offer with it a grain offering, and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you and speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt 
that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Okay, you got all that? Uh, Like much of our study, as we looked at the blueprint for worship, the the plans for the tabernacle, a lot of details about furniture and curtains and clothes and priestly garments. Um, But I hope as we travel through this, you've been able to see how it does teach us something about our own worship of God and who he is. And we come to one of the last pieces of the puzzle, and that is the actual consecration of the priests. And Tim shared last week about the actual robes. Um, Now that they're all dressed for their service, they are ready to be consecrated or set apart for their service as priests. Um, And again, more mind-boggling details, and I didn't even read the whole passage. Uh, But the ritual of consecrating or ordaining, if you will, the priests involves uh, washing them, dressing them, anointing them with oil, offering three different sacrifices on the altar, getting anointed again with oil and blood, eating a meal in God's presence, and then all of that followed by seven consecutive days of ordination where a bull is offered each day as a sacrifice. It's hard for us to follow and really hard for us to make sense out of. And and the reason is that none of us ever plan on doing this, right? Have you ever read this passage and thought, I'm going to go home and I'm going to do this, right? I'm going to anoint myself, right? No, of course not. Because we kind of know that the priesthood's done. We we don't do this. I'm not going to do this. And so it kind of has the effect of reading, like if you're a diehard PC user, uh, try reading an instruction manual for a Mac computer, right? You don't own a Mac. You don't want a Mac. You don't care about Macs. You read the instruction manual. It makes no sense to you, right? Because you're not ever going to practice what it says or vice versa. It only makes sense if you're going to do it. So for the people who are doing it, for Moses, for the priest, and they were very interested in this because they were actually going to carry this out. For us, not so much. But it does have value for us, not because we're going to practice it or because we're going to ordain somebody this way, uh, but uh, it does have two important uh, pieces of, of value for us. Uh, the first has to do with uh, our own priesthood as a believer. And it's great that Andy read that passage from First Peter, where it talks about us being a holy priesthood unto God. And so, unlike, and we'll, we'll talk about the differences Uh, We're not priests like they were, but we are priests. And so it does inform and speak to us something about our role in serving and ministering before God. What does that look like for us and how can we check that we do it with the right heart and attitude? Secondly, it has value for us because like everything in the tabernacle, it ultimately points to Jesus. And it is a picture or illustration of what Jesus has done for us. And it deepens and enriches our understanding of what Jesus did to accomplish our salvation. So let's look at um, this, this passage. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too bogged down in all the detail, but I want to look at these two kind of main categories. What does it tell us about our own priesthood, our own service to God? And what does it tell us, how does it help us understand what Jesus did for us? Uh, So let's look, first of all, at at, um, what it means to be consecrated as a priest. And in verse 1, it starts off, he he tells the purpose. He says, this is what you shall do to them, that is to Aaron and his sons. 
to consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Um, consecration uh, is a word that simply means to make something holy. It's the act of holifying, not an English word, but that's what it would be if you could translate it directly. Holifying something, making it holy. And the, the word really has two ideas. The first is kind of a moral sense where we cleanse or wash something so it's free of guilt or sin. Or if we're talking about something like God, who is just inherently holy, it, speaks, it can speak of his moral excellence. There's no trace of sin or wrong in him. In every way, he's morally pure and perfect. And of course, for people, for humanity, that can't be said of any of us. So we need to be made holy. We need to be consecrated uh, to be uh, our sin and the guilt and stain of it removed and washed away. So that's one sense of the word. Another sense of the or idea of consecration is something that is set apart for a special purpose or service. Right? It's dedicated to a certain task. So like in the computer world, you can have a dedicated server, right? To me, that pictures of images of people who make me tea and serve me lunch, a dedicated server. I think in the computer world that it may mean something different. Uh, but, but that's the idea here is, is they are dedicated to service. Okay? They're dedicated to something specific in God's temple and God's service. And actually, both of these concepts are, are, are active and what, what happens is as God consecrates Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. Uh, so the first one, let's look at this whole idea of consecrating, atoning for sin, making them morally pure and holy. Um, Moses is instructed here to, to offer three sacrifices. The first one being a bull, full-size grown bull. If you've ever worked on a farm or been around animals, a bull is a significant chunk of meat, right? They can weigh, you know, I don't know, seven, eight hundred kilograms, twelve, thirteen hundred, fourteen pounds. It's a big, big animal, right? Uh, along with it were two year old rams, uh, not quite as big, but still not, not a small animal. And they were to sacrifice these. Uh, the first two are clearly intended for this idea of. Uh, consecrating them in that they were atoning for sin. Right? So the first one is the bull. He says, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. So they bring it into the courtyard right, uh, probably at the altar or near the altar, right at the front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then, and, and, and while they're holding hands, okay, so picture this. You're, you're Aaron, right? You're standing there. There's this bull you're eye to eyeball with, and you're laying, hi, nice bull. Nice, nice bull. Uh, uh, you lay your hands on, on his head, and they cut its throat while you're holding his head, right? And the bull kind of goes cross-eyed and blurry-eyed as the life bleeds out of him, right? And so the last thing he remembers is this funny-looking guy with his hands on his face as he blacks out and, and dies, right? Uh, then you take the, the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. Uh, you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. And he says the key words, it is a sin offering. The sin offering, right? The whole point of this is to 
make atonement between Aaron and his sons and God. Atonement, if you know the history, um, is a word that uh, Tyndale actually invented. Uh, it means to make us one with God. And so he invented the word at one Atonement, at one It makes us one with God. It removes the stain and the consequences and guilt of sin so that we can be right before God. Right? We can be holy. We can be right before God. And I love this picture that they lay their hands on it. And it was a symbol, a symbolic of them transferring their sin and their guilt to the animal. And an atonement sacrifice is always in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, always a picture of substitution. Right? Uh, the wages of sin is death. The one who should have died for these sins was Aaron and his sons. They were guilty before God of sin. And they should have paid with their own life and their own blood for their own sin. Problem though, it's really hard to serve God as a priest when you're dead. <laughs> right? So uh, there needs to be a substitute. So the bull is provided as a substitute by laying hands on the bull. It's a picture of transferring their guilt to the bull who now takes their place. And as they're standing there and its, its throat is cut and it dies and its blood is poured out, gives up its life. Right? The life is in the blood. And uh, for every, uh, every atonement sacrifice, there's a picture of substitution and there's also a picture of the, of the life being spent, the blood being poured out. And so the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission or removal of sin. So that's what this is about. They are, they are made, they are cleansed, they are washed. Their sin is dealt with uh, as, this blood, as this bull gives up its life, as its blood is taken and it's put on the altar and part of it's burned on the altar, some of it's burned outside the camp. Uh, some great pictures there as well of dealing with sin, of paying the penalty. Right? And of course, this was not unique to the priesthood. Okay, this was the exact process, the exact offering that would have been done for anybody. In fact, it was done annually for the peop- all the people of Israel to make atonement for them. So this was not unique to them. This is really just the prequel. This is the prerequisite of dealing with their sin as a human being, fallen, corrupt, sinful, who needs their sin atoned. Uh, it's interesting, though, that th- this is not the only sacrifice. There's, there's then another sacrifice. And they have to bring, after they do this, had to take some time. Then they go with round two. And round two, they do pretty much the same thing, only this time it's a ram. But again, they lay their hands on its head. And in verse 13, it says, You shall take the ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on, on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood and throw it against the side of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head on the altar and burn the whole thing on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Again, this too is, a, is an atonement sacrifice. Right? It was burned completely. And, and throughout the Old Testament, whenever it's a burnt offering, it means the whole animal is put on the altar and is consumed in the fire. Nobody eats it, eats it, right? It's all given to God uh, because it's, it's, it's an offering of atonement, right? Um, so what's interesting here is these guys, uh, you know, a bull, 1,500-pound bull is not enough. Okay, you've got to do the bull, then you've got to do the ram. 
Uh, and finally with that, it's blood splatter on the altar. It's burned. It's consumed and fire goes up to God. And, and, and uh, their, their sins are dealt with by these offerings. Um, so here's the principle. Here's the principle that comes out of this. The first requirement to be a priest um, is to have your sins atoned for. Right? Uh, the priest was not morally superior to anyone. They were a fellow Israelite, sinful, just like all of them. There's nothing special about Aaron that they were more righteous or more holy. They, just like everybody, and just to emphasize the point, God, God makes two sacrifices, right? One sacrifice is, is not enough. Just to make the point, these guys are no different than anybody else. They are set us apart by God and atone not because they're holy. They need the same work of reconciliation, work of forgiving and cleansing that everybody else does. Uh, so God, so God has to consecrate. He has to holify them in order for them to be qualified to now serve in His temple, in His tabernacle. So that's the first sense. So the second sense of the word of consecration is, is this idea of dedicated service. Uh, and this comes with the third sacrifice. Okay, so they did a bull, they did one ram. Now they're to take the second ram, year old. Uh, in verse 19, he says, "You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their head." head hands on the heads of, of the ram, and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron. Now, this gets weird. <laughs> You're not putting the, altar on the, uh, the blood on the altar anymore. Now, they're supposed to put it on his right earlobe and his right thumb and his right big toe. Amen. Um. And then throw the rest of the, the blood against the altar. Then you shall take the blood that's on the altar and, uh, and the anointing oil and mix it together and sprinkle it on Aaron and his, gar- and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, consecrated. Okay. So what's this all about? Well, this is, is different. Okay. They've already been atoned. Although there are still are images of atoning in this, they're still laying their hands. The blood is still uh, thrown on the altar, but but they are actually anointed. First off, with the blood of the animal directly, and uh, you know there's been all kinds of theories about why the ear, the thumb, the big toe. I don't know. Okay, I don't know. You make up your own theory. Um, likely, it was the most easily accessible and visible appendages of flesh. You know, without him taking his robes off that he just got on. Um, but along with that, they take and rub some of the oil off the altar and they mix it with oil and they sprinkle, sprinkle, they anoint them. Moses is to anoint them with oil. Uh, what is that a picture of? Well, throughout the Old Testament, anointing is always something that's done to, to mark someone apart for a special role. You see this with both Saul and David who were anointed to be king. That is, they were, they were marked in a special way and set apart for this unique role as king. And so here you see the, uh, Aaron and his sons being marked, being set apart for a unique and special role as priests. Right? Uh, and, and God makes it clear later on that, that, that only his sons would be able to serve as priests. So back in the Old Testament times, you couldn't, 
You know, as a, as a kid, think, boy, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a priest. Right? It didn't happen that way. The only way you could be a priest is if you were born into Aaron's family. You got the job simply by birth. Um, and, and God set them apart. He marked them. He anointed them. He consecrated them, setting them apart for the special service to him. Um, and in this case, the offering is not burned whole. Right? It's, not a, it's not an atonement offering. It's a fellowship offering. And in a fellowship offering, uh, some, uh, the, the, the offering was actually divided into three parts. And I won't go into all the details, but one part, mostly the inedible stuff, uh, was, was given to God. And it was burned on the altar. The second portion was given to the priest. In this case, Moses acting as the, as the priest who was anointing them. He would have got the second portion. But from this day on, uh, God gives the instructions here that this portion, the second portion, belongs to all of Aaron and his descendants. Right? This was their right. It was their, their payment for their job. Because they were to be set apart. They weren't to be, in fact, they weren't going to get land when they got to the promised land. They weren't going to get their own land to farm. They were not going to be uh, spending their time raising vineyards or olive trees or planting wheat. Their vocation, their set apart job was to be a priest. And so to be reimbursed for that, to be compensated, they would get this second part of the offering. And then the third part was, was the part that belonged to the one who was offering it. And they would be cooked along with the, uh, the priest portion, and they would eat this meal in God's presence. Um, so again, it's this idea of being set apart for special service in God's presence. Um, so what is exactly they're being set apart to do? What is this job, this service that they are to be involved with? Well, uh, this is going to be overly simplified, but to boil it down to its, its main components, it, it involved two things. First of all, they were set apart uh, in this dedicated profession uh, to serve uh, the guests who came into God's house. And God makes it clear that the tabernacle, in fact, the courtyard, all of it was, was his dwelling place, his tent, his residence, his home. Right? And so when the Israelites would come in, uh, they weren't coming, they were leaving their home, and they were coming in as guests in God's house, right? Um, have any of you ever been invited to, uh, like, a, a really kind of formal dinner at a very important person's house? And you go in, you get all dressed up, and you go in, and there's, like, servants waiting at the door, and they usher you in, and there's, like, butlers with tuxedos. Anybody ever have that? Not me. I never have. I've only seen it on television, actually. Uh, but, but, you know, when you're a guest in that kind of home and it's formal, you don't just go in and say, hey, hey, like, man, I'm hungry. Can I go, like, raid your fridge? Not, not allowed, right? When you're a guest in a home like this, you're, you're treated as a guest and there are people who serve you. Well, that was the picture here. They were coming into God's house as God's invited guest. And they were not free just to roam around uh, on their own, kind of cash, you know, just hanging out, chilling with God. They were, they were to be served. And so the priests had the role of serving um, the guests as they came into God's house. Um, but, of course, the second, the second role that they had is not only just as general kind of household servants for God, but uh, as people came in, they needed help. 
They came in and they were not fit for the banquet that was prepared for them. Uh, if you could use the imagery, they came in in filthy rags. He's not literally, but spiritually. Sin had clothed them in, in garments that were not appropriate for the house that they were entering into. And they needed to be cleaned up. They needed atonement. And there was a problem because everything in the tabernacle, everything, the, the, the altar, the, uh, the, of course, the tabernacle itself, the holy place, the holy of holies, all of it was holy. And a person who came in who was not yet holy could not even touch the altar. Right? So, so you couldn't touch the altar. You couldn't, you couldn't perform the task necessary to make atonement. And most of all, you couldn't go into the holy of holies. It was off limits. Right? So it was required that there be an intermediary, someone who would go in between, somebody who was already made holy, who was then qualified to offer an atonement sacrifice on your behalf so that you would, in in essence, exchange your filthy garments for clean ones. You would now be fit and suitable to come into this house and be a welcome guest in God's presence. Uh, So that's their role. That that was the purpose. That was what they were being set apart for. Right? Let me apply this to us real, real quickly in this way. What qualifies you to serve God? What are our qualifications? We are called priests. We are, uh, many of us, uh, serving God in full-time ministry. Hopefully all of you are serving God in some kind of capacity. Um, in the Old Testament, only the priests and the Levites could really serve God. But uh, in the, in, under the New Covenant, we're all invited and, in fact, commanded to serve God, to enjoy that, in essence, privileged position of joining God in, in his ministry and his work. Um, so what qualifies you for that? Well, uh, I think two things we, uh, we need to be reminded of, and, and you know this already, but it's just good to be reminded. We are qualified by blood, not by service. They were qualified by blood, not by service. Under the new covenant, uh, God doesn't dwell in a tent or even an elaborate temple, but he dwells where? Well, he dwells in us, and he dwells in his church. Right? We together, the body of Christ, are the dwelling place of God. God dwells in us. Um, and so we have been made into a holy priesthood where we serve in this, this church. Of course, it's not a building. This building is not the church. We as the body of Christ together are the the church, and we are the servants in the church. So we serve each other as guests. And of course, we also serve the world outside by inviting them to come in. And of course, we don't atone for them, but we bring them to the one who can make atonement, Jesus. Um, It's super important to remember that we are not sanctified by our service but rather we serve because we've been sanctified. And of course, we all know this, right? We all know this, that, that I serve God because Jesus died for me. But, but, but here's, here's the danger. Uh, and you could see how this happened with the priesthood. And in fact, it did happen throughout the Old Testament and even into Jesus' day. What happened was the priest, you know, when he came into the house, the priest, he's the holy guy, right? He's already been consecrated. His sins have been atoned for. And so now he is 
holy enough that he can make atonement for you. And what happened is as the priests began to serve, they began to believe this lie, this delusion that, well, I'm a priest because I'm better than everybody else. I've kind of already arrived. I'm, I'm a holy, I am a holy person. Right? And they started to believe that they were not cut out of the same mold as everybody else, that they were different. And of course, this actually carried on to the, even the New Testament era and the New Testament church as the Catholic church picked up the tradition of priests and clergy, right? And so you have the clergy up here and you have the common people down here. The clergy are like extra holy. Of course, Martin Luther came along and he, he realized that was, was wrong. And so he did away with that. But I'm telling you, it's a temptation that carries on into our day. And, and I know from firsthand personal experience being a pastor, this is what happens. People expect you to be kind of sinless, right? Because nobody wants a, sin, a pastor whose life is a moral wreck and failure, Right? So it's like, we want a pastor who's a holy guy, who's a good example, who's showing us the way. And pretty soon pastors start believing this. Right? They start living up to this expectation, thinking, wow, I'm, I'm the preacher. I'm the holy guy. Everybody thinks I walk on water. I must walk on water. You know what? I don't walk on water. Right? None of us do. I love, I love that that it took, it took two sacrifices to cleanse Aaron. Right? It took a double dose of medicine. One shot was not enough. Why? Because he's just like everybody else. Right? You may be a full-time minister, you may be a missionary, you may be a Bible teacher, you may be a Bible scholar, you may have five doctorates, right? you may be able to read Greek and Hebrew upside down and backwards. Of course, you know, you read Hebrew backwards, so that's the easy part. Right? That does not make you any more holy. Only one thing consecrates us for service, and that is the blood of Jesus alone. Right? Amen. We all need forgiveness daily. Right? I am a screw up, right? I need forgiveness daily. Um, in fact, in verses 38 to 42, it says that he, Jesus, after they're consecrated, God gives them kind of their main role uh, of, of offering these, these, these atoning sacrifices, right? And notice, notice what it says in verse 38. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. The, the priests were to present a, a burnt offering, an atonement offering, twice a day, every single day, day after day after day for generations. Right? They needed forgiveness daily. And as the priest should do it, of any of them, as they were the ones offering these morning and night, they should be reminded, because that was the point of it, a reminder what did you do today that needs cleansing? Do it in the morning, because what did you do last night that needs cleansing? We serve God because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And those who understand that, no matter what your position or role is, 
ought to be people who daily practice active repentance and confession. Right? Where we daily are examining our life. Now, you know, back times of my life when, when I was pastoring, and I really kind of believed this. I mean, in my head I didn't, but in my heart I kind of lived this out, right? And I remember thinking, there are days like I would think and I would try to, I would try to repent. Right? God, I, I think I need to repent. I want to confess. And I would think really hard and I'd be like, God, I want to confess, but honestly, I just can't think of one single thing I did wrong all day. Right? I, think I'm, I think I'm pretty good, right? Um, well, here's the deal. You know, when we compare ourselves with others, or maybe we compare ourselves with how we used to be, and like the sins that maybe you used to deal with, you know, praise God if God has helped you overcome those sins. But the reality is all of us have vast blind spots of, of weakness in areas where we still are failing. We still are falling short, right? And, and, and what we need to do, if you come to that point where you go, God, I just... I think I've arrived. I think I'm there. Well, well, just wait, because you know, give it about five minutes and you'll screw up. It's a guarantee. But even if that, ask God to show you your blind spots, right? And even better yet, ask your spouse to show you, to say, God, you know, honey, what do you, what do you think? Where do you think I mess up often, right? Um, be brace yourself, right? Because the list could be quite long, right? And, and my experience has been, you know, as I've overcome sin and I've seen progress, God strips off whole new layers of areas where I need to work. Pride, selfishness, doubt, lack of faith, right? Um, fear, right? What, what makes you fearful? Behind that is guaranteed a, a lack of faith is, is sin. Uh, we can fall into two extremes. One, we can feel that we never really sin much. We really don't have much to confess because we, we, we're convinced that, you know, we believe everything people tell us about how good we are and how holy we must be because of our, our full-time ministry. Um, the other extreme is to feel all too well the burden of sin. Right to, to, to carry around this deep guilt and pain knowing that we sin and we just can't get out from underneath bad habits and we feel controlled and condemned and guilty. And the good news is that the, is that the cross is the answer to both extremes. Right? If we come daily to the cross, we come knowing that, that there's things that need cleansing. But we should also come... Uh, and so we should come morning and evening. We should come daily to the cross and say, God, I bring before you, you know, rip open my life and show me those things that need cleansing and forgiving. But at the same time, we should come to the cross knowing that his sacrifice is sufficient. His blood is enough. Right? One time was enough for, for all time. And, and there's nothing we need to do extra to atone for our sin, Jesus washes it all away. He consecrates us. He makes us holy. He makes us fit to serve him. So that should be our identity in Christ as a people who are forgiven and made holy, blameless before God. But we're made holy and blameless by the cross and the blood of Jesus, not by our own goodness, not by our service, not because we're 
we have positions as full-time Christian workers or as pastors or missionaries. Right? We should be growing, but the process is not finished yet. Right? There's still things that God is chiseling away in our life. Okay, that's the first thing. Second application. Uh, we are chosen by our birth, not by our expertise. Why did God choose you for ministry? Well, another great lie that we can fall into is believing that God chose me because I'm so bright. I'm so superiorly intelligent to everybody else. I'm so incredibly gifted and talented that that's why God chose me. Well, uh, that's actually not why God chose you. God chose you because you were born into the right family, his family. That's how it worked with Aaron and his sons. Why did God choose Aaron's sons? Simply because they were born into the right family. Right? They didn't have to have anything special, just the right birth certificate. With Aaron's name at the very top of the family tree. Right? God has chosen you because you've been born again and you're one of his children. Now, does that mean you don't have gifts? God has gifted you, absolutely. Does it mean you don't have natural talents? Yes. A lot of you have incredible talents. And we should develop those. We should... Uh, Increase those. We should make the best of them for God's glory. But we're not called into ministry because of our natural ability. We're called because and chosen and appointed to serve him because we are born into his family. All right, so that's kind of our side of it, how it teaches, speaks to us. Let me wrap up by just quickly touching on how these things point to Jesus, right? Um, it's a great place to end. Um, verse 43, uh, there's an amazing statement. And I want you to listen as I read it. It says, God, God's speaking. He says, there uh, at the temple, uh, at the tabernacle, the instance of the tabernacle, I will meet with the people of Israel. And, and it, that is the, the, the altar and the tabernacle itself, shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Okay, so after this long chapter that I didn't even read all of, I'll let you go home and read it for your, you know, t- this afternoon before you take your nap. Okay, a lot of details, all this ceremony, lots of animals, lots of blood, right? And at the end of it, God says, and by the way, I'm actually going to be the one who, who makes it holy, the tabernacle, the altar, the garments, the priests, I will sanctify it. Now, hold on. Wait a minute. Hold the bus. Okay. If God's going to make it holy, why go through all these steps? Right? This seems like a lot of waste of good beef. Um, if God is going to just make him holy in the end, what is this about? Well, all this is necessary because in the end, it is God alone who can consecrate them. Right? These are all just very elaborate pictures and illustrations to help them know and understand what it is God will do to consecrate them. See, if God had just said, I'm just going to consecrate you, they'd be like, okay, great. I have no idea what that means, but I'm good for that. By giving him these, these rituals to go through, it, it gave them a very visual picture of what was required for God to make atonement for them so that they could come in and be fit and worthy in his presence. 
And I can just imagine, you know, every time you go in and you lay your head, I mean, it's one thing to kill an animal. In those days, they're, they're, you know, their meat didn't come all wrapped up in tidy little packages in cellophane, right? If they wanted a hamburger, they went out to the backyard and they grabbed a goat and they killed it and they butchered it. Okay, they were used to this probably more than we were. But even at that, to put your hands on its head while somebody else slits its throat and you watch the life drain out of this animal. Pretty powerful image. And to, and to see its blood applied to the altar and, and ultimately one day into the Holy of Holies presented. To know that it cost a life for you to be forgiven. Powerful image, right? And it, it is a... These symbols are, are vivid pictures of what was required so that God could consecrate them. And it pointed to the only sacrifice that would ever matter. And that, of course, is the sacrifice of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, 18 through 27, explains it this way. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's the commandments that we're just talking about in Exodus. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he that is Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, tr- who draw near to God through him. In other words, he, can saves, he saves completely since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for the sins of the people since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. See, Jesus is our great high priest and his sacrifice was enough one time for all. And of course, he didn't need to offer atonement for his own life because he was already as he says, innocent, holy, pure, set apart from sinners and exalted in heaven. See what it says that God sanctified by them by his glory. What was his glory? Well, his glory was his son. It was Jesus who he sent to earth and sent to the cross to make atonement for us. Who now lives to forever make intercession. That is to stand before God on our behalf and plead our case. So when we come before God, he, he pleads. He says, no, I have, I have I've taken care of their sin. I have clothed them in my own righteousness. And I have removed the filthy garments so that they can stand before you holy and blameless. And what's all the purpose of this? Well, in Exodus 42, God ends by restating the purpose of all of this. This blueprint for worship, the whole tabernacle, the, the sacrifice of the altar, the priest, all of it. And he says this, uh, God will meet you at the tabernacle and speak to you there. 
There I will meet with the people of Israel. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What's the point of all this? Well, it's easy to think that the point of all this was to get rid of sin. And yet we talk about sin a lot because, well, we need it, right? We need to be reminded constantly of our own sinfulness and also of God's grace to deal with it. But getting sin out of your life is not actually the end goal. Right? That's, not, that's not really what this is all about. It is instead a means to a much greater end. And what is that much greater end? Well, it's simply this, to live in constant fellowship with God in his presence. He says, you'll draw near to me through Christ. Uh, here they drew near to his temple. They met God at the entrance of his temple as a result of this elaborate worship practice. That's the goal, to live with God in his presence. Amazing, right? You and I have the privilege of living life daily in God's presence. And, and that's what their worship was to lead to. It was ultimately to lead not only to these atonement sacrifices, but also to the fellowship sacrifice, to sitting down and having this meal in God's presence as a guest at his table, to fellowship and commune with him. Our worship will, will greatly miss the mark if it does not produce the same results. So let me just give you some questions to think about as we, as we turn to worship God right now in, 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 in singing. Uh, seven questions. Does our worship focus adequately on the great price of our redemption? Do we daily acknowledge our need for God's grace and forgiveness? Do we contemplate regularly the great price Jesus paid to save us? Do we really believe in the adequacy of Jesus' death and blood to remove all the guilt and deadly effects of sin? Do we consider his resurrection that proves the power of the cross to give new life and make us a new person born again in the Spirit? Is our worship filled with a great sense of enjoying the fellowship and joy of his presence? And lastly, is our worship an act of diligently seeking God in order to meet him face to face so that we can come to know him more intimately? You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.